following program has adult language and potential spoilers. Listener be advised. Welcome to the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. This is your moderator, Diablo Frank. I'm here with Mr. Fix-It. Hola. It's good to have that little Latin spice on the program. Also with us is Illegal Machine, sometimes called Mac. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. <laughs> okay. This Caucasian. Hi, I'm Caucasian. Thank you. <laughs> Mayonnaise salsa. Got it. <laughs> okay, so why the Hulk? <laughs> okay, Walter Cronkite. No, I think you, you turned me on to him when uh, you showed me those, uh, well, of course, the cartoons and stuff, but when you showed me the comics... Peter David stuff. It's really because I remember I read earlier Hulk stuff, and as a kid, you know, we just saw the intros to uh, three different decades of the Hulk, and uh, I pretty much watched all three of them. It's not that you dislike the Hulk; you already were into the Hulk. You were just into the Hulk from the cartoons. Yeah, yeah, definitely the cartoon. Once I got hooked on Peter David's stuff, it was <laughs> just the quality. Because that was the same thing for me. Is I hated the Hulk so much as a kid. It was a Seven Eleven or a Stop and Go. It was over by the flea market. I just saw it and it had that great Del Keon artwork, and the cover was the Abomination in full face, and then the Hulk is miniaturized on his shoulder, screaming at him. It amused me, and then I picked up the book, read it, the art was gorgeous, the story was great, and that's how I started collecting the Hulk. It took Peter David to switch me too, but it, Peter it was, David really just had some awesome artists when he was on yeah. the Hulk, didn't he? <laughs> just crazy, crazy good well, art. The, the funny thing, though, is, like, Jeff Purvey, who you're a big fan of, and I like him too, but he never was very commercial. He never seemed to break through in a big way. And I did not say commercial. Mm-hmm. I just well, said no, but Del Keown really was huge. Oh, I know. Del Keown. Del Keown. Oh, Gary Frank. Gary Frank. Yeah. Well, he's still, actually, Gary Frank is one of the guys who's still well, in the Mike industry. Mignola, I mean, his covers were fantastic on the article. That, but that was back with the Mantlo. He was talking about when, how, how okay. Peter David and the Cotton got yeah. lucky with his yeah, artists. Did, and yeah. His run starts with Todd McFarlane, who of course became huge. And then Purvey was sort of the aberration. Then you get Dale Keown, who became huge. You got Gary Frank, Angel Medina, who McFarlane recruited. Obviously, you had somewhat diminishing returns, but these were still guys who would sell Some a book artists. based yeah. on being on that book. And Mike Theodato Jr. He didn't have a very well-regarded run by that point, but Theodato's one of the big guys today. He's held on very well since the 90s, where a lot of guys got shook loose, like Dale Keown does covers now, and that's all he does. He jumped over to Pitt, right? And then yeah, yeah. He even admits that most of his stuff he does covers because he's in a rock band, and this is just his side. Air quotes. He yeah, air quotes. Yeah. He jumped off Hulk. He did Pitt, and I think he only did like an issue or two right off the bat. And he made so much money since that was when it was just a license to print money for Image that he went. He put together a studio. Some of them went through the money a lot quicker than they probably well, should I remember, have. I remember going to the Hilton Hotel to get Todd McFarlane's autograph and taking my number one issue Spawn, and like, can you sign it? He was a douchebag. But at least he signed. He's still a horrible human being. The crazy thing, he didn't even look at the books. He literally was talking to someone and autographing. Which I get, it's your name, and it's kind of hard to fuck up your own name. But you can't forget how big those guys were. At oh, that they were time. rock stars. I mean, yeah, that, they were rock stars. It, it's there's nothing that's even close to today how big those guys were. We've been to well, enough cons. We we know how annoying the people there are that we make fun of. So true. Let's, let's give Todd a break. Well, no, but the thing was, okay, when I walked into the con, do you was, think it's bad for us? How do you think he feels? His signatures were free. Mm-hmm. He did not. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got to give credit for that. Hey. Now, they did say 200 limit. <laughs> like, so everybody was fighting to get into that line, and I got there super early just to get the autograph. 
you could tell by, I, I was like, say, midway the line. I mean, mine looks like a really nice Todd McFarlane. By then, it was just like, you know, screw up. But I would get tired, too. He took breaks. Yeah. Like, he would do like 10, 15 things, just take a break. People would ask him questions. He would always do, well, when I was doing stuff, or when I do stuff. And so it was kind of, eh, I mean, it was interesting. It was a big deal for me. It was, you know, I hadn't really met any of the stars yet. McFarlane came on, I think, an issue before Peter David. And then Purvey is the one who replaced Todd McFarlane. Mm, no, wait. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right because he turned to fix it. He turned to fix it at and the end of it. prior, because that, that was one of the issues was that Peter David was in the marketing department, or uh, sales or marketing mm-hmm, department, mm-hmm. and it was forbidden to use writers from uh, one of the other departments, particularly from sales. What happened is Al Milgram was a beloved creator at Marvel, but. He never was a big seller. He did Spectacular Spider-Man for a long time. He did Hulk. In the case of Spectacular Spider-Man, I think he was fired. In the case of the Hulk, I think he quit. And one of the reasons why Peter David stayed on the Hulk for so long, even when the book wasn't selling that great, nobody wanted the Hulk. Yeah. You know, Al Milgram gave that book up. He just didn't want it. Nobody else wanted it, so they didn't mind so much that the sales guy was writing it. When you put the sales guy on one of the Spider-Man books, that was a big issue. Mm-hmm. But before that, it was Al Milgram, and I think before that was Matt Lowe and... and and, and that's why we have Frank on the show. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent little history yes. lesson there. You have whole eras within the Peter David run where, okay, you like the Great Hulk era. You like the Green Amalgamated Hulk era. You like Savage Banner era. You like, you know, well, nobody likes Savage Banner era. But you could glom onto specific regions within that writer's term because he was there for, what, like 12 years? A uh, little, yeah, about yeah. 12 years. So well, even if you minute. didn't like one Peter David version of the Hulk, give it time, and you might like another one. Oh, yeah. Well, now, that, that's, that's what happened with me. Yeah, yeah that was one of the problems I had, too, is I came on to the Hulk regularly during the Gail Keung period. I liked the Gary Frank period, where you had a sort of resolved Hulk, where his personalities had formed a gestalt, and they were stable, and he was a consistent force for good. He was always the Hulk. And I didn't start losing interest in the book. I lost a little bit of interest just because it wasn't as dynamic. And mm-hmm. while I liked Gary Frank, Gary Frank was still building to his artistic peak, where I think Dale Keown, not too long after the Hulk, he reached his artistic peak with the pit. While he still is a great artist, that was the best work he was ever going to do. Mm-hmm. Where Gary Frank did good work on the Hulk, but it wasn't his best work. And he was a little, almost a little too polished, too clean. So you didn't get that vigor that you get from some other artists. So re- reserved, refined, yeah. you know, clean. And then, I, as much as I liked Liam Sharp, though, once they started getting into the weird, twisty, bizarro changes they made with the Hulk after 425, I just kind of lost interest from that point on. We decided to watch three different origin stories for The Incredible Hulk from the 1966 Marvel Superheroes animated series, from the 1982 Incredible Hulk series, and from the 1996 Incredible Hulk series. So we are origin the fuck out. And also, I happened to read his original origin story from The Incredible Hulk number one, which was, what was it, 61, 62, somewhere in there? Mm-hmm. 62. What we got here is a gray Hulk with a nice little pinup on that first page. There's a big sex bomb called the... The phallic bomb. The G bomb. We're always looking for that G-bomb spot. Good list. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a big phallic 
vibrator dildo looking thing. That's going to be tested. It was created, of course, by Dr. Bruce Banner. Time out. Interesting point. Was the vibrator invented in 1962? I was wondering if maybe this may have also spun off <laughs> the original design, but... If it no, continue. actually, I think the vibrators were around as, like, okay, 20... Now we're, diver- now we're diverging from... <laughs> yes. Okay, stay on top. Got Dr. Bruce Banner smoking a pipe, something you can never get away with anymore. You can't even have John Constantine smoke a cigarette. How the hell does that even work? He's getting ready to set off this G-bomb, and he has an assistant, Igor... I don't know if he's an assistant. I think he's like a fellow doctor. Yeah, um, like a rival. He wants to have as much of the information on the projects as possible, but like the classic Golden Age scientist, Bruce Banner would not divulge any information, kept it all secret from everybody, including his own assistants, which I'm pretty sure isn't in any way legal, and you can never get financing to do something like that. I mean, that just doesn't work in real life. Uh, yeah, probably not. Old Igor, he wants this information. He's not going to get it. And then you've got Thunderbolt Ross, that old airbag, and he is pissed because he's been wanting to blow off this bomb. If he was in charge, he'd have blown that bomb a long time ago. And goddamn Bruce Bruce Banner actually wants to be safe about this shit. Military Man also has his daughter, Betty Ross, which is an interesting name because the prototype for Peggy Carter, Captain America's girlfriend, in the, the earliest Captain America stories is Betty Ross. Mm. And I think that huh. Stan accidentally stole that name, or they were just both riffing on Betsy Ross, and that's why Stan eventually changed the name. The countdown's beginning, everybody's ready to take off, and then all of a sudden, Bruce sees, this is a famous origin, everybody knows this origin, this jalopy cruising through the desert. Bruce has to stop, get this kid out of the way of the bomb. So he runs out, he tells Igor, hey, stop the explosion, I'm gonna go get rid of this kid, and then we can blow some stuff up. Igor, though, he's an evil guy. He's not going to stop the detonation. Bruce runs up on this kid, Rick Jones, who's sitting in his car, playing a harmonica. He'd been dared by some kids to go out onto the field for X amount of time. He's an idiot because this guy's like 16 years old. He's still doing shit that we did when we were eight. Bruce Banner gets a hold of the kid, runs him to a ditch that apparently is going to be able to protect him from radiation because that's how radiation works. The kid gets into the ditch. Bruce Banner gets hit with the gamma rays. Nothing actually happens initially in the original comics. He's just sort of freaked out because, oh my God, I just got racked by radiation. I'm going to be going out like somebody from Hiroshima. It's going to be bad times. Instead, they're hanging out, waiting to see what's going to happen to themselves. They're both, they have taken at least some degree of radiation. They've got a guy counter going. As night falls, Bruce Banner begins to swell, his muscles grow, he turns gray, and he becomes this great big hulking beast. Swats Rick aside, knocks over a wall, and starts rampaging. He runs into the military, destroys their jeep. Rick, figuring he still owes this guy, is trying to help him out, follows the gray hulk. The military is already chasing him, and that's when they dub him the hulk. But they manage to evade the military police for a long time, and Bruce still remembers that he wants to get back to his apartment, where he has stashed his notes on the G-bomb. They get back there, and Igor is tossed in the place, trying to find info. He whips out a gun and he makes a line about how you will not live to report Igor to the security police. So clearly he must be some sort of a commie. But he tries to shoot the Hulk, doesn't make a bit of difference. Hulk crushes the gun, slams Igor about and actually turns over one of those beakers like Walter White used to cook meth and here's this fat report, looks like the Warren report, taped to the bottom that says top secret report on gamma ray bomb. So he couldn't have made it much clearer. Awesome, Igor's that's like the sign, secret hideout this way, right? Right. <laughs> then they also find a picture of Bruce in his normal form. We watched the cartoon adaptation, which so far has been very faithful, except they went ahead and made the whole green. But there are a few tweaks, and one thing I liked was there's a scene where Igor has his hands clenched around the lapels of Bruce, and he's like, you have to tell me the secrets! And Bruce is kind of waving him off. Part of the psychology that he 
he's trying to play is that you could blow us all up if somebody doesn't check your numbers. And Bruce kind of says, you don't have to check my numbers. I'm right. Which is something he took out of the, the cartoon, I guess, because they didn't want to make him seem that arrogant. Mm-hmm. But I like that because it's something you don't get to see hmm. in some of the later books. He's not such a weenie as he becomes. At this point, he's an arrogant guy. Yeah. This is also the origin story for Osha. So they find a picture of Bruce in Bruce's pad, and Rick shows him the picture trying to help bring him back to reality. The Hulk is clearly dismayed to see this, but it is weak, soft. I hate it. Take it away. Not a fan of himself. You can see that he's got some serious body image issues. Well, he swats Rick aside again. He's kind of pissed off. And then the sun comes up and the Hulk becomes Bruce Banner again. Because something else they didn't really touch on in the cartoon, because again, it would have confused people. But initially, the trigger for the Hulk was sundown. If the sun was up, he was Bruce Banner. If the sun was down, he was the Hulk. By the way, we're on the third chapter, page 12. They really wanted to push, the, I guess, the epic vibe. We're telling you a novel here. This is actually one of the only Marvel comics that was full length at this time. I think Fantastic Four and the Hulk were the only ones where it was a story-length comic book where everybody else was appearing in bifurcated anthology titles. Mm-hmm. The military catches up with Bruce and Rick, and they basically rearrest them, and they arrest Igor as well. And then the military men are recounting their experiences with this hulking beast. One of the military man pictures this giant gorilla that's escaped from the zoo. And then there's a picture and a bear. <laughs> of a bear covered in rags that's supposed to have escaped from the circus. That is a funny image. I like that one. Betty Ross is consoling Bruce. She obviously has the hots for him and she's a very uptight, proper looking lady. Tyler Moore. Lo- you know, shoulder length brown hair. Bruce is hanging out. He's waiting to turn into the Hulk again. Then we flash to Igor, who's locked up in jail. The title of this chapter is Enter the Gargoyle. And he has this little radio communicator in his fingernail, which is awesome because there are so many technological wonders of the 60s that today you got on your cell phone and it means nothing. We still can't talk into our thumbnail and reach communist Russia. We've still got that to look forward to. Yeah, it was cool. They they showed the little circuit board sort of embedded in the nail. Mm -hmm. It's very, very cool. Yeah, this is Stanley and Jack Kirby, so you can see the Kirby very big in this. They managed to contact what I assume are the Soviets, although they look a little lazyanic here, but they're calling each other comrades, so we're going to go with Ruskies. The message gets through the communist bureaucracy and eventually reaches this deformed little person who calls himself the gargoyle because he also has body image issues but apparently he has a large head and he's brilliant and then he's got bushy eyebrows that or as Jack Kirby called them eyebrows yeah he actually looks quite Kirby-esque the gargoyle arranges to have himself sent via a turbo submarine or something along those lines then fired from a missile and then the missile deconstructs over the United States and he lands he goes to hunt the Incredible Hulk because he must have this power for his own meanwhile the military's finally led Bruce and Rick wander around and do stuff Bruce doesn't know whether or not he's going to change but he decides he's going to drive the car with Rick until he turns to the Hulk, which he does at nightfall because brilliant people are often very, very stupid in real life, too. Yep. So it destroys the car. Rick and the Hulk are wandering around on foot. I should also point out that while the Hulk doesn't speak terribly well, he's much more articulate than Hulk's mouth. The line of dialogue is, what am I doing here? Got to go. Go where? Hmm. So, a little bit better. And I think, didn't they adapt the dialogue in the cartoon? Yeah, it was pretty close to that, too. I guess it's just his voice was so garbled, though. That was yeah, it, it was really, voice. like, That's screech ish almost. Yeah. yeah. Like, I almost like witch-ish. Yeah. Which came first, Solomon Grundy or the Hulk? Solomon Grundy came much really? earlier. Solomon Grundy was from the 40s. Really? Because that's very Solomon looking there. Well, let's be honest, though. In the case of Solomon Grundy, that looks to have been something of an adaptation of the Boris Karloff Frankenstein. Frankenstein, right. Uh-huh. And so that's sort of a common genesis point for a lot of these visuals from comics and, and film. So the classic uh, monsters are pretty much yeah. the base. Well, it's like Boris Karloff, when he was being filmed, he had green makeup on. But obviously in a black and white film, that just registers as greys. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to adapt 
black and white imagery into the four-core world of comics, you're much more likely to use this gray of the Hulk. So it's ironic that a printing error caused the Hulk to turn green, just as Boris Karloff was when he was actually... Actually green, right. Yeah. yeah. And that's being franked. <laughs> you got franked. <laughs> They're wandering in the desert, and somehow the gargoyle manages to catch up with them. Oh, and then we have a little interlude, too, where Betty... This was definitely cut from the cartoon. I, I took note of this. Where Betty is thinking, "Oh my God, the Hulk! He was scary, but he's also kind of. I, I'm worried about Bruce. I'm worried about the Hulk. He's boostly, but he, there's a certain neediness to him. And I just want. He, she's. He's a bad boy, and she's wet for him. Let's just be honest about it. She, yeah. she thinks she can change him. She thinks she can make oh, him. They better. all think that. <laughs> she goes out trying to find the Hulk. She faints at the sight of him. We're on part five now, page twenty. This is a long one. Gargoyle finally has caught up with the Hulk and Rick Jones, and he has a little pea shooter. We've seen enough. George Reeves Superman shows, those aren't supposed to do anything. They're supposed to shoot the bullets, the guy laughs it off, and then he throws the pistol. Well, the gun actually works on the Hulk. This little pea shooter brings the Hulk down, brings Rick Jones down, turns them into temporary techno zombies. They follow the gargoyle back to his jet that flies them from the United States to communist Russia. That takes a little bit of time to make that distance. Night becomes day, and Hulk becomes Bruce Banner again. The gargoyle realizes, oh my god, this is the preeminent gamma scientist Bruce Banner. I wonder if you can help me with my problems, because if I could turn into a human for even a little while, that would mean the world to me. Bruce says, well, look, I can't fix this Hulk thing right now, but I can fix you, no problem. So just in the span of that one day, he manages to put together the equipment and the setup necessary to turn the gargoyle back into a human being. The gargoyle is so happy that he shakes his fist at Nikita Khrushchev, which they diluted a bit in the cartoon, but it looks a lot more clear in the comic book. He arranges for Rick and Bruce to go back to the United States the way he came, that weird missile thing. And meanwhile, he stays behind and sets up a doomsday device where he blows up himself and his fellow communists so that nobody knows that Bruce Banner is the Hulk. And that's the end of the first Hulk. When that happened in the cartoon adaptation that we watched, we're like, what just happened? He <laughs> called all his boys in the room, pulled out a freaking trigger, and blew them all to pieces. I, don't know, I was pretty shocked. Yeah, you can't get away with that today. No. You gotta wear a seatbelt, you can't smoke, and you cannot blow up yourself and other people in a suicide bombing. Just not considered kid-friendly fair. No. covers essentially the first, the 1966 cartoon and the original comic book. Mm -hmm. But then we can move on. Okay, so the 1982 cartoon was fairly different. So that was the long-haired Rick Jones. With yeah, the, the cowboy hat with, with the Hispanic what, my, my name ain't Daddy-O or, or Big Mustache and Rita. Rick Jones is a hippie cowboy. The Not hot really, for a hot a He's got a, he's got a uh, cowboy hat, long blonde hair. What is it with fucking Rick Jones? He's always like a decade behind. He's a like a beatnik in the 60s. He's a fucking 70s BJ and the Bear motherfucker in the 80s. He's always behind the times. It's always so great. He's working at a Mexican restaurant with <laughs> What is it, Rosita or Rita? Rita and her dad, big mustache. 
No, what's his real name? Uh, call him, he calls him Russo. He calls him Popso all the time. Yeah, right? I call him no, Popso. Because it's the name of the restaurant. The Mexican yeah, restaurant Rios. is his name. Rios. Rio? Rios. Okay. But he called, He said, don't call me Pops or Big Mustache, <laughs> which I still find a little offensive. Don't call the daughter sweet cakes. Yeah, yeah. He said, standing around, he's supposed to be working for them, but he's always flirting with the daughter. Pretty much. Of course, the origins follows the same. Big bomb in the desert. This time, Rick Jones is only cutting. He's, he's late for a date with Rita, and to cut 20 minutes off his travel, he decides to drive through a military base, which makes no no sense, but and the, the reason he cuts through the military base is because a low-flying spaceship has destroyed some of the fencing, and he's like, "Oh, cool, fences open. I'll just drive through." <laughs> but little do you know, there was a sign that said "dangerous military testing" that had been covered by some of the debris. Yeah, even well, though even though he's worked right down the street from there this entire time, I guess he never noticed the sign. Well, and, and we can officially consider the spaceship a retcon. <laughs> It's definitely a point of demarcation. Yeah. But also, didn't the family see the spaceship flying over the yes. next yeah. restaurant, too? Everybody did. So you think maybe, yeah, I'm going off the date. Let's do the close encounter thing for tonight. Well, of course. And then and this one had more of a sci-fi feel to it because, of course, we have well, the ship drop an egg. Uh, and then we're also forgetting the first thing that the family says when they see the spaceship fly over. It, Rick Jones goes, oh, man, it's just like Star Wars. And we're like, oh, it's 1982. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cool period piece to just lock this sucker in. <laughs> so, yeah. So it, it had more of a sci-fi film. X, right? You have the ship land. The ship gets destroyed. It drops an egg. Rick is driving through. For some reason, his truck breaks down right next to the bomb. Bruce gets out there, rescues Rick. Bomb goes off. What was off. the name of the guy in the new one? Pitchlow or Carlson or something? Carlson, Carlson. yeah, Carlson, who just happens to turn off to be an android later on. So they definitely went... Spoilers. Spoilers. Oh, they're watching. There's going to be nothing but spoilers. I mean, let's be honest. So they definitely, I think it had more of a, I guess, techno well, feel to you, it. One thing you didn't mention, because well, you know, the, if cartoon, you think, the cartoon... Well, no, if you the, think about it, the one in the 70s had more of a science feel to well, it. Well, not 60s. Or 60s, yeah. I'm sorry, 60s had more of a science feel. The 80s is more pushing technology in terms of robotics, machines... Well, it's just the product of its time because the 1966 version, which is based on what was it, a 1962 story, whenever the character first appeared, those were reflecting because you're talking about middle aged men crafting stories. They were re- reflecting the, the 50s sci fi, mm-hmm. where it, we're out in the desert, we're blowing shit up, and we're making monsters from the shit that we're blowing up. It's giant ants, and, you know, it's them, it's all that kind of stuff all over again. Where by the 80s, when you've got these kids that have been watching Star Wars and Superman, you've got to up your game. Plus, in the 60s, they hadn't figured out who the Hulk was going to be yet, to some degree. By the 80s, he he was very much a certain thing for the cartoon. He was, the cartoon was made to reflect the comic books that were being produced, not only at that time, but for the previous 20 di- years to the cartoon. The science reflects that. The science is much more of that 80s and 70s and 80s sci-fi. It's just reflecting the times. So I guess I guess the eyebrow things was the goth Hulk. Well, my Michael Romance Hulk, which uh, I, I still like. They were actually supposed to be the based on Sal uh, Bushima Hulk. Both, you know, the character designs mm-hmm. were based on his comic books. But the, the big bushy eyebrows and the, the guy liner that he had, that reminded me a lot of guys like Jim Starlin doing the Rampaging Hulk magazine in the 70s where they do those painted covers and they give them the big eyebrows. Yeah. But uh, it's supposed to reflect Sawashima as well but one thing I liked is that in the 60s cartoon there's not very much animation. They're very stiff and so you're basically just seeing panels. But what was great is they decided to go all out in the transformation secrets of the Hulk in the mm-hmm. 80s series where it looks like it's rotoscoping I yeah, think rotoscoping. it was where they, they, it looks like they almost filmed an actual human being to give it that fluidity and because they were going to repeat that transformation sequence over and over again in this case twice in the same episode 
episode, they packed a lot of detail. So if you're going to see the same thing over and over again, they want to make sure that it's very entertaining. There's a payoff. Yeah, and it, it does. It's really fantastic mm-hmm. looking. It's way too detailed to be something you'd want to repeat on a regular basis, but if you manage to get it down that one time, it's going to impress every time you see it. Betty has short hair this time. She's a little spunkier. Hey, she's an 80, she's, 80s working woman. Yeah. She, she's a little bit of the old, uh, what's her face? Like yeah. Mary Lou Retton. She, uh, the, the, well, and it's a very important distinction, is that Betty Ross in this version is not only got the short black hair reminding me of Jimmy Lee Curtis or so that go. very modern Pat, woman. Pat Benatar. She's one of the scientists. And to me, it makes a lot more sense for Betty to be working alongside Bruce rather than just being the daughter of some random general that's working with him. What the hell is she right. doing in the base in the first place? Why is she constantly in danger? But it also empowers her. That's a very feminist notion for Betty to be one of the scientists. And I hadn't realized it because I hadn't watched those cartoons in ages, but pretty much every iteration of the character from that point on, she is also a scientist. She's a scientist in the 90s cartoon. She's a scientist in the Ang Lee Hulk, in the Incredible Hulk that was a pseudo-sequel, and probably influenced Jane Foster becoming a scientist in the Thor movies. Mm -hmm. So I think it it was a very beneficial change. It it was great to see Betty be very proactive because she's not just like, oh, I love him. Daddy, will you spare him? She's not the Pocahontas of the Hulk world. She is like, look, that's a guy that I care about. We're going to do what we can to help this guy. She's an active part of the origin. She has a true role to play beyond fawning love interest. Well, I did like the fact, too, also, if, if you watch the 80s version, you don't get the origin story right off the bat. <laughs> right. You get a chance to kind of get to know the characters. By the way, that is a damn handsome Bruce Banner in the, that 80s yeah. cartoon. Well, I love and the f- Agile, he's jumping around like freaking Spider-Man. Well, he's climbing up the- on equipment. I think that that was a conscious effort to reflect. Well, while most of the cartoon was wanting to reflect the comics, I think that the handsome, non-glass-wearing Bruce is a reflection of the 70s TV show. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually, they didn't show the origin of the Hulk in the very first episode. I think it was three in to the 1982 series because they knew that people were still watching the syndicated reruns of the yeah. whole TV show. They, they didn't need There's the no origin right off the bat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think they wanted to make sure they reflected the Bill Bixby version, which is what we're doing again today in the Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. Or the, the at least the Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo is basically the Bill Bixby for us. Oh, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that there was a major change from the original origin is that Carlson goes back to Bruce's pad, the Hulk goes back to the pad, and he almost immediately rips the guy to pieces, determines that he's a robot, which to me I think was an obvious ripoff from Alien. The, the android? The, just the main yeah. ship guy. And, of course, he is tied into the aliens that are invading. They don't really tell you very much. The, no. the, the spaceship comes in, and you have an insectoid robot, and then he also has those eggs, these spider sentinel things. It, it looks like something from the 50s, 60s version of the Johnny World of Worlds. Oh. Side note, best soundtrack, though. Incredible Hulk had some nice sound effects. I mean, you've got people that initially resemble humans being ripped apart. The Hulk is tearing apart these mechanoids as well. Violent, very aggressive, and then you, the music has that strong horror vibe to it. it again, it's, it's sci-fi horror. And of course, you know, the thing we all joked about is how he walked down the hallway and he had that massive weightness to him where it's like stomping sounds as he's walking. Yeah, it, it, well, it, yeah, because he was doing his, his Hulk leaping and every time he hit the ground, though, they would shake the quote-unquote camera to show you how big he is. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was a great great touch, too. I just like the darkness around the eyes and the eyebrows. He was scary looking. Yeah. He was an intense guy. I well, like and, that and intensity. The way they did the, the screaming, too, the screaming was a lot yeah. more yeah, yeah. beastly. And I, I just thought it had a really cool feel to it. I had a really good feel to that 80s cartoon. Ultimately, Betty gets kidnapped by the robot alien insectoid, whatchamacallit. Mm-hmm. Hulk rescues her, rips the hell out of the robots, and in the end, the leader of this robot is decapitated. The head is still talking, and then it self-destructs, and that's the end of the episode. It's pretty freaking messed up stuff to be showing a kid. Mm-hmm. Even though the robots, that's still like decapitation is decapitation. Yeah, yeah. Hulk smash. Hulk, Hulk, smash. Hulk smashed indeed.
the nice cartoon. Okay, so we're going to recap the actual origin, right? So let's allude to the new material. Uh, this was another instance where they didn't feel the need to dive right into an origin. Bruce has already been on the run for a while. He's trying to devise means of turning himself back to normal with the equipment he has available because the military knows that he's the Hulk and are hunting him. Betty is still a scientist, but now she has long flowing blonde hair. There's a pre-title sequence. It's a dream where Bruce and Betty are on a date together and they're all in love. Then this colossal version of Thunderbolt Ross comes in, rips Betty away from Bruce, and Bruce hulks out because he's ticked. But this giant chasm opens up between himself and the Rosses. Imagery, so imagery, imagery. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then that goes into the theme, the title sequence, which was also very symbolic. So then this this episode was mostly, let's see, it starts out with Bruce. He's trying another way to try and cure himself of the hulking disorder. General Talbot and his henchmen, I guess, sort of discover a, a power line, right, that they've tapped into. And they're like, oh, this power line, this has got to be Banner trying to fuel an experiment. Who would need this much power? Of course, as Bruce is about to run this experiment, Talbot snatches a bazooka off one of his guys because they can't <laughs> figure out a way to sever. Because I guess it, it's some wireless electromagnetic transmitter that's transmitting the energy, so we don't know where he is. Talbot's like, just give me your bazooka. I'll blow the whole damn thing up. And that's exactly what he does right when the experiment's about to happen, which of course causes Banner to hulk out, jump out of his underground layer, blow everything up. It's a two-part episode, so we don't really need to get into too much about the nuts and bolts of it. They do finally, I'd say, probably three-quarters of the way through the first episode, do a quick little recap of his origin. Well, the thing to remember is that because these guys have been hunting the hole for a while, they drop this big metal boss-looking thing on top of them, and he punches his way out, but Betty's able to convince the Hulk to chill out. He becomes Bruce again, is captured, and brought back to the military lab. So once they start actually recapping the origin, it gets pretty close to original. To the original. Uh, instead of a phallic-shaped bomb, we had a more of a dome-shaped bomb. Here's the Dylan, diaphragm bomb. Dylan from 90210 <laughs> does the voice of Rick Jones. Oh, fuck, we forgot about fucking spiky-haired, brown-haired motorcycle rider. Grunged Rick out. Jones. Grunged yeah. out Rick Jones. <laughs> ears were guy. pierced. His ears his were ears pierced. Were pierced. Luke, his ears. Luke Perry from 90210 did the voice for Rick Jones. Starts riding his motorcycle right. Motorcycle breaks down. Bruce Banner jumps out, tries what to save him. What the fuck is this dude doing with a motorcycle in the desert? I don't. It doesn't. I don't, did they even try to give you a reason this time? It's no. the 90s. No. He, he's just a rebel, man. He's just He'll a rebel. He'll never be any good. Just, that's why he's got earrings and a goatee, man. He does not have a goatee. I thought he had a goatee. Nah, his ears were pierced. Mullet. Has yeah. a spiky mullet. Work in the front, party in the back. Didn't he have a pilot, like a fighter pilot jacket or some crap like I that, too? No, it was bad. The... Yeah. So it was funny because Bruce goes out and grabs him and he fights Bruce off and then tries to jump back on his motorcycle and Bruce has to yank him off the motorcycle again, tosses him into the, the, little, the little bomb shelter and they are able to close it the just before that... just before it blows up and, yeah. and zaps him. That was the one where he they sort of flash him as the Hulk and he's gray and then he turns green. Yeah. Was that what my yeah. thing? No, that's yeah. right. I saw that. Which I thought was they, a they pretty cool touch. really grotesque body horror transformation yeah. sequences too where he's got yeah, these like tumors his... building up in his throat and his head kicks back into the angle that would not be appropriate to his sustained yeah. life. Jacked up. And veins turn like a uh, icy green yeah, looking. Yeah, brutal, man. It yeah. looks rough. It's good stuff, though. And I'm not remembering what happened after well, that. Well, what happens too. is you get the quick flashback to the Hulk origin, and then the leader turns out to have been watching all this from a secret lair with, oh, and that's the thing, too, that we forgot. And he's got they, gargoyle with him. Yeah. Did we mention that he was turned into Gorgon for the 66? We did person? not. Wasn't there a gargoyle that fought Iron Man as well? Yeah, well, yes. it's gray gargoyle. No, but who's the no, guy no, no, no. that fought, like, he worked with Titanium Man. Well, he was Shiloh. Titanium Man. Gargoyle was Titanium Man. But this was apparently a different Gargoyle than the one that was in the Hulk. I think it's the same one. No, he blew the hell up. So I, he, I guess so. Because I figured that's why they probably turned the name to Gorgon. Gargoyle had one of the most awesome comic book deaths of all time during Armor Wars. So the leader decides he's going to have his flashback action as well. He remembers that he 
was a worker at a plant that was dealing with the gamma sludge radioactivity, which apparently just runs like a river when you blow up a diaphragm bomb. And he falls <laughs> into the sludge, and he just so manages to have... He's got a biohazard suit, but when he's falling, it happens to catch his helmet just to make sure that he's got that exposed. And when he lands, his head expands to large size, and he becomes a super genius. They don't give us the gargoyle origin. Toxic Avenger. Yeah, basically. Actually, wasn't the cartoon running sometime? Probably. Yeah. I know the movie came out way before that, from Trauma. Well, Swamp Thing cartoon was in the earlier part of the 90s, right? Swamp Thing? Yeah, remember Swamp Thing? Early, like late 80s. Late, was it late, that early? Late mm-hmm. 80s? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You're talking about so, the first Swamp Thing, right? Uh, well, yeah. The, the movie the or the cartoon. TV show? The cartoon. Oh, the cartoon Swamp Thing? Yeah, they thing? had a short-lived cartoon, because if I remember correctly, the Toxic Avenger and the Swamp Thing cartoon were on around the same time in the early 90s. I think they were trying to bite into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action to some degree with more of a gross monster version. And of course, neither one of them lasted for very long. Gremlin was Titanium Man, not Gargoyle. Gremlin! We're, we're, we're getting Why our... Why the hell did they change? Oh, we're Gargoyle. We're getting our Russian midgets mixed up. <laughs> right? We get the leader's origin, and then the leader apparently has the abomination under lock and key, mm-hmm. and since the abomination to screw up a new experiment, they were supposed to hopefully turn Bruce Banner back into himself and no longer be in the hole. But he gets distracted by having to fight the abomination instead. And again, the, it has proven that the army are horrible shots because they're shooting missiles and lasers and missing. Yeah, well, and they're shooting each other. Like, in all of these cartoons, the army is just shooting, missing, and then hitting themselves, which the, is the, pretty hilarious. New Mexico-based military services must go to the same training school as the stormtroopers because they have about the same form. Yeah, where they just, just fire wildly and they're just knocking each other out and they're dropping like flies. That And there is a scene where, really weird jacked-up scene, where when they first are aware that the whole going to potentially be a problem again, Betty and Thunderbolt live together, even though Betty looks like she's right. an adult woman, and you get to see him shirtless with this six-pack, even though he's got the grandpa mustache. He looks like aggro Santa Claus, and she's helping to dress him. They're fighting while she's working his tie. There was some weird yeah. symbolism going on there that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. Luckily, he immediately goes into, oh, you know, Talbot, well, I don't know why, you, what you don't see in him, and he's such a great guy, and she was like, Dad, which kind of kills some of the weirdness of her dressing her father. And, and which is, <laughs> it just distracts you. It doesn't kill yeah, the weirdness uh, at all. Now, do you, how do you feel about Thunderbolt Ross? Are you like a fan of that guy, or is he on your nerves? Nah, not really. I mean, he's... What he's about Major Talbot? Ross Light, I guess you would call him. Like, he's just, he's doing it more for promotion and vengeance, because he lost Betty. Well, even in the, in the original story, he had the hots for Betty, but she falls in love with Bruce, and he's always a little spurred by that. Well, they married at one point, didn't they? What? Uh, I believe that she was married to him and he died, and that's how they managed to bust the relationship up. Because uh, Talbot was dead for most of the 80s, if I remember correctly, and they didn't resurrect him until 2000s or something? I'd have to they go like back Joe and read Casey's that stuff. I'd have to go back and read that stuff. But the point being is you don't have any emotional attachment to that. No, no, no. Major Talbot's in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in live action. Oh, really? He ends up being an antagonistic presence, because I don't want to spoil anything. I don't know how much of it you would ever want to see. Eventually, the core Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. go rogue. I heard about that and, part. And Talbot is brought in to track them down so he's essentially tracking them the way that he went after the Hulk he's played by Adrian Pazdar from Prophet and Heroes mm-hmm. I enjoy it because he's got a fake mustache and the buzz cut hair and he looks so douchey that it works perfectly for Talbot hmm. he probably is going to work better as a S.H.I.E.L.D. adversary than he ever was as a Hulk one. well we'll see what happens in the next season of S.H.I.E.L.D. so is there another gargoyle which gargoyle was in the Defenders I guess he had some pretty cool video games too, right? Yeah, the destruction game was really cool. Yeah, where all he did was just run around, you just break shit all the yeah. whole everything. So, Mac, tell me your experiences with the Hulk. All right, so when I think back to when I first was introduced to the Incredible Hulk, 
it has to be the Lou Ferrigno Bill Bixby series. Loved that as a kid. Thought it was all. I mean, most people did, right? I mean, that was kind of a sure. Yeah. That was a, a big time show. I think comic book wise, I think we talked about it before. I haven't really collected a lot of comic books, but I've always been, and I think the Hulk is really unique in this way. And I'd say there are only a few characters like this. If the Hulk was in a guest star in a book, you wanted to at least flip through that book because you knew that they were going to throw down. If you ever saw Hulk and Thor on the cover of a book, even if you weren't going to buy it and you didn't give a shit about Thor and you didn't give a shit about Hulk, you're going to flip through it to see what happened. I've always I've got very vivid memories of Hulk crossing into Iron Man and their little skirmishes. You got the Hulkbuster issue. There was an issue where Iron Man charged up his armor, used up all of his energy to hit Hulk with one gigantic punch, knocking him out cold into a big crater. Rhodey walks up behind Iron Man, taps him on the shoulder like, "Hey, Shellhead, good job." And then he's like completely stiff and just like falls and planks on the edge. Of of the crater because he used all of his energy. You knew that the other characters would have to give it everything they freaking had to fight the Hulk. So no matter how much you hated the Hulk, thought how lame he was, you always respected the strength. The other side of that was whenever you would compare stats of a character. Remember the old Marvel Universe trading cards, yeah. right? They had like their stats on the back. Mm-hmm. Hulk was always the ten for strength. I never you, played, but I, I no, 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 no. I'm not talking about overpower oh. and shit like that. I'm talking about like the actual trading cards. Okay, yeah, on the back yeah. they'd have like their dexterity and strength and agility. Hulk was always strength. So you always compare other strong guys to Hulk. Thor is super strong. Is he Hulk strong? No. Hulk's always, to me, that standard for strength. Okay. The bar that you measure the other heroes. Right, he's the benchmark. Iron Man, super strong. Hulk strong, you always go back to that. Hercules. That's all Hercules does. He's, he's strong, right? He has yeah. no other powers, but he's not Hulk strong. You always measure against the Hulk. The only other characters I think that are really a draw like that, if you see Wolverine on the cover of a book, you probably pick it up and flip through it, as long as it's a non-X-Men book. True. If Wolvie's going to cross over into Cap, you're going to pick it up and flip through it, because you figure at some point they're going to fight. I would never pick up a book just because I saw Silver Surfer on the cover. Not Captain America. I just, I can't think of any other ones that, that if they popped up, I'm like, I got to pick this book up and flip through it. If Thor crosses over into somebody's book, I'm not going to pick it up. Iron Man. And I could totally see why people would be like, okay, Iron Man's going to be there. whoop de doo So Hulk was kind of like a gateway into you flipping through a book just because you knew there was probably going to be an interesting You got to see how either the Hulk trashes the guy in the book or how the guy in the book avoids getting trashed. So as, as much as I have really not been interested in the Hulk a lot of the time, because I think that the guy just doesn't have a lot of dimensions to how you can play the character, which I know is not necessarily the case, obviously, but in my dealings, that's how I always view the character. There's always the fascination. Going back to characters that guest appear in books, Spider-Man is not one of those characters for me. Just because Spider-Man's on the cover of your book, I am not going to pick it up and flip through it. So He's just a, not. I was always the opposite. Depending on the villain of the cover, I would flip through the book. If I saw Thanos, yeah, I'm not, I'm not talking about. Saw... I'm not talking about villains though, because villains. I'm talking about heroes, because villains are different to me. Heroes have their own books. No villains really have their own books. I've always had a weird relationship with the Hulk. I said he, I, to me, he's a benchmark guy in the Marvel Universe. A keystone. He's a mainstay. But I just have never been interested in collecting the book at all. Did you watch any of the movies? You know, I kind of watched the movies, but I just don't remember much from them. Like, I I know I watched the Ed Norton one. I know I didn't find it nearly as offensive as I thought I was going to find it. (laughs) What about the Ang Lee one? I I just remember the Ang Lee one being really boring. Yes. Really plodding and boring. Hulk jumping a lot. But I did like how gigantic he was in that one. Wasn't he, like, super huge in the Ang Lee ones? I thought he was, like, really Um, big in the He was... I guess if you're going to compare to artists, he was kind of a... I always thought that John Byrne drew a huge Hulk. Yeah, well, I was going to say, well, no, because the Ed Norton one would more be like a Dale Keown Hulk. Yeah. And the Ang Lee Hulk would be... I got an artist in my head. There was an artist who rode with Paul Jenkins, Ron Garney. I would see it as a kind of a Ron Garney style. Dr. David Banner, physician, scientist, searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation alters his body chemistry. And now 
when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The creature is wanted for a murder he didn't commit. David Banner is believed to be dead. And he must let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. I would say probably the, the David Banner television series is probably the most successful of any superhero TV series outside of a Batman. Talking about like live action? Yeah. Not an apples to apples comparison because people don't watch TV like they did in the 70s. Really since cable. Yeah. Honestly, television peaked in the late 70s, early 80s in terms of audience. And then with cable, it started to disperse. So I, like lately they've been doing a lot of talking about Seinfeld because it's the 25th anniversary. And Seinfeld in its first season was about 14 in the ratings, like the 14th rating, which which means that it is multiple times higher than Walking Dead or anything else. Right. Anything that's not ready today is a, it's a fly on speck on what Seinfeld was. So, but yeah, in terms of audience share, Incredible Hulk. I can't. I haven't told thinking of a show that was that successful that lasted long. In fact, The Incredible Hulk got Wonder Woman canceled. Oh really? Yeah, they were both on the same network, CBS. And CBS was the Tiffany network. They always held, thought highly of themselves. And because they had two popular shows that were superhero-based, they started to get this reputation of being the superhero network. And they canceled one more not because of low ratings, but because they didn't want that image. Mm-hmm. And I think the Hulk only lasted so long after one of them was canceled. How long did live-action Batman, Adam West Batman? That's the thing. It was pretty short. That, well, and, and that's actually did maybe not good as long I'm, as I thought? Yeah, I'm pretty confident. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I had forgotten about Batmania. Batman at his peak... Would be kills everything. Touch. Yeah, it kills yeah. everything. But that was something that burned very brightly for a short period of time. Because if I recall correctly, they were actually running two episodes per week. Mm-hmm. They would do it, what was it, like Tuesdays and Thursdays, mm-hmm. and they'd do the cliffhangers. So they, that's why they have something like 100, what is it, 120 episodes total? But they burned through all that in three years. They managed to get that high in three years because yeah. of the, the scheduling. And that third year, the ratings were just the toilet. It was, have it you just, ever it, seen it, the Batman movie? Oh, that, actually, that movie was a lot of fun. I, I used Dude, to watch he used kid. shark, pro, what was that, back shark repellent. See, but that's the thing. You <laughs> spray it or down or you're not. Oh, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I love Batman. Batman is probably in the... I don't in, know about the character, the, I'm talking about the show. Do you love the show, though? Um, Do you love the movies? Because I... I that's well, a good point. That's well, a good point. Well, it doesn't matter if you loved it or not. I mean, you could recognize it. That's iconic. People still do the zap pow punching and that was that's from the TV show that's not from the comic that's from the TV show no because because when they're doing it live action and yeah, doing well, the pows with the live action to me that is that's what I think of whenever I hear somebody go oh it's like Batman it's that pow bing that's what I think I yeah. think of the live action to me I think you know like even Family Guy did the the Bruce Banner hitchhiking or David oh, yeah. Banner oh, hitchhiking yeah. oh, you know right. with that Stewie that's Bruce Banner and, and the theme you know what I mean uh, to me there are no other live action superhero anythings that kind of have the resonance that that Hulk had unless I'm com- just completely missing I think Wonder Woman's up there yeah well um, everybody knows the theme yeah. as far as specifics of the show probably not so much we have an image of Linda Carter typically uh, probably a lot of images burn into people's minds from the opening like the Sydney animated opening sequence and then the shows themselves, I think, are just... Probably nobody remembers. Any, it's, yeah. it's uh, I remember her running away from the camera quite a bit. That uh, back shot. 
yeah. you might remember that. Just but they, but you did bring up a good point too. Another one of the big ones was Adventures of Superman, the George Reeves series. That was still running when I was a kid. I don't know if you guys ever watched that at all. Nope. I'm not going to say that Christopher Reeve wasn't my Superman because of course he was. Oh. But I also Amen. fondly remember the George Reeves because I grew up on that as well. But uh, I, I, I think, and I think that just makes my point even more that right now we're talking about the Incredible Hulk next to Superman and Batman. Oh, absolutely. Which uh, I mean, everybody knows the Hulk, but we all know the Incredible Hulk ain't Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. He's, right. he's just not. So, in terms of its global recognition. And, and, and to, uh, as far as characters in a television show in the 80s, how would you think the Hulk would, you know, you wouldn't even think nowadays, well, you got to have CGI to do the Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, that was awesome. Yeah. So you wouldn't even think a show like the Hulk would even work back then. It's it that was much more difficult to pull off than just, you know, Batman in a suit, cheesy looking suit, or even Superman in a suit with some cheesy, uh, Flying, you know, flying effect. Well, yeah, the George Reeves stuff does not hold up pretty well. If you try to watch it a day, everything is better than that. Yeah, Even I, Smallville holds up pretty well compared to Adventures of Superman. Yeah, but see, like I think Smallville kind of just... I think Smallville was hot when it was hot, but I don't think anybody really remembers Smallville anymore, you know? Yeah, but I mean, they, that, that could that could go back to what you were saying. Just audiences are, were smaller, so there's fewer people to remember it today. I, I don't know. Well, that, I, that, I, I, I think just, it just ran too long. I think it burned through a lot of its goodwill by the end of it. I, I just think when you actually think about it, there, were, there have been a lot more superhero live action television shows those to me are the big two Batman and Incredible Hulk yeah. uh, to me those are the big two and everybody else is kind of kind of behind and again I could totally be spacing on one that I'm just completely not remembering but well, uh, you touched on a lot of really strong ones people ones that very much penetrated the consciousness and there's a lot of shows that are fairly popular like things like Arrow but it's popular in a specific demographic amongst yeah. a few million people and you're talking about a world that's grown Good, good deal since yeah. the late 70s. Yeah. So it's this tiny little niche where the whole, at least in the United States, was big. I'm sure that got... Well, it had to do with the branding, too. I think the branding of the characters helps a lot. Well, there, and there were a lot of toys. There was yeah. a lot of little penetration with the whole... That's why they kept doing cartoons. X-Men took a while before people started paying attention to it, even though it was the biggest thing throughout the 80s, because everybody had grown up recognizing the icons of Marvel, the Spider-Man, Captain America, the Hulk. Iron Man. The people that really had... Yeah. Well, and, and, not and, even really Iron Man. Iron Man had the cartoon. I'm not trying to... No, I know. Iron Man, Iron Man not had that kind of penetration. No, no way. And, and I mean, Lou Ferrigno is a, a national treasure, for God's sake, and it's it's off of that show. So just stuff like that, to me, that we were at Comic Palooza lines for Lou Ferrigno were pretty freaking stout. Yeah. For someone who hasn't really done more than, you know, silly guest appearances. But even then, he's still getting guest appearances on TV shows and sitcoms today based on stuff he did in the 80s for the Incredible Hulk TV show. So that's what I'm saying. I, there's just nothing else that does that. Flash Gordon doesn't really count. I guess Flash Gordon's oh, no. got some that's, pulp stuff that, to yeah, it. No, but that's way past. That's, and, but that doesn't really count as a superhero, well, no, right? Really, and that was not a very successful movie. That's one of those things. That, I think that's the power of Cape Flash. Wait, 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 wait. Are we talking about the Queens? Yeah. Flash Gordon? That, oh, come that, on now. That's a classic. No, what happened is people who grew up in a certain period of time who got to adopt cable fairly early watched the shit out of Flash Gordon because they played the shit out of it on cable and that's why that, that movie has meaning to that generation of Gen Xers and maybe yeah really Gen Xers I don't even think Gen Y would touch that the, the millennials I, I don't think they have that as a touchstone if they remember Flash Gordon what they're doing is they're reciting another show referencing something to do with okay, that, that's, or, or that's actually in my movie collection like that's one of my tops yeah but that was a movie it didn't do great when it first came out and there's just this generation of people 
grew up on it and love it for that. That's what we call it a cult hit. Yeah, a cult hit would count. It had to be popular. Like, Hulk was popular yeah. at the time. You know what well, I, mean? well, I remember, it, to, it didn't have to get rediscovered. It was good from jump. Well, like, I remember in junior... Well, of course, I think I was in junior high, like, when the Hulk movies would come out and everybody would get excited, like, the Hulk and the Thor movie. Back then, that was, like, a big deal. And it was funny well, because... I watched every one of those movies on the first broadcast. Yeah. I had to see that. That was hot shit. Because they'll... Kids will never understand the hunger you had as a comic book fan for anything yeah. live action and adaptation. You didn't have that kind of stuff. Before Batman, yes, please give me a TV movie with some guy dressed in a pseudo-Viking gear, and he's got a nerdy scientist that's basically a sidekick because we're completely fucking up the continuity of the comic books. But at least Thor was in a movie, and he was actually kind of good. Well, not, let's not forget Adventures of Babysitting, too. Vincent Nofrio, yeah. Thor. That was, a, that was another uh, yeah. big one. Of that's a good way of tying it together, too, because you had the, the Hulk movie with Daredevil, the Hulk movie with Thor, and then Vincent Nofrio played Thor in Adventures of Babysitting, pseudo, sort of, kind of, and now he's going to be playing the Kingpin in the Netflix Daredevil series. Holy cow, you just blew my mind that's out. That's why we have Frank around. It's too, it's too late. You've been franked. <laughs> you got franked. You got franked. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Twitter follows the Aquaman Shrine, Charlton Hero, Flash, The Gam, for Grown Man Blog, Gordon L. Lee, Hey Kids Comics. That's a book written by the fellow who runs the Aquaman Shrine, Rob Kelly. It's it's a compilation of different people's stories about how they got into comics. I've got a copy. I've read a little bit of it. I haven't had a chance to read it too deep, but everybody I've talked to says it's great. Luke Dobb. Yeah, Luke Dobb's another fella. He's he's part of the Fire and Water alumni. He's a musician and an artist. He's done some really great pieces. I, hopefully, I'll have an opportunity to retweet some more of that stuff in the future. I haven't been very good at getting on the Twitter lately because of just time pressure. Odell Abner Dracula, the Sheridans, the Marvel Legion, Tom 3FPC, Tom McAuliffe. Twitter favorites, Archambaud Felipe, Bill at Philly Spider 85, BCX Radio, Chris Thompson, Count Druncula, David Golding Artist, Il Perrin, Eternal Rage, Firestorm Fan, Gordon L. Lee, Herd Network, Infinity Watcher, J.F. Redruff, Jason Martinez, Longbox Graveyard, Lawrence Ken Kissart, Myth Making Etc., Odell Abner Dracula, Pete's Basement, Pirate Mike, Professor Riptide, Sam Lowe, Sean McLaughlin, Silver Age Sensations, Siskoid, Sin, The Unky, Thomas Watton, Top 5 Road Crew, Trent Petronatus. Whoa, you got it. Retweets. Ange, uh, Archimbach Philippe, BCX Radio, Chris Thompson, Count Druncula, Eternal Rage, Gil, Infinity Watcher, Keith G. Baker, Professor Riptide, Sam Lowe, and the Top 5 Road Crew. Jason Martinez has been slowly working his way through our back catalog of episodes. We greatly appreciate that. He's recently listened to Drax the Destroyer Earthfall, Adventures of Kazar the Great, and he says it was a good episode, and Marvel Superheroes Podcast Episode 7, which was the Annihilation Prologue. Good old Jason Martinez is ripping through him. Uh, our next comments from Infinity Watcher regarding Marvel Fanfare Cut. Coverage. Fanfare number two has a cool backup story. It's basically the real Annihilation prologue. Laugh out loud. I really dig the art for these books. I want to collect all the Chris Claremont issues. He also added us to one of his Follow Fridays alongside Caleb Williams, Geeks with Wives and Capes, Nerd Foo, and Ron Kakesi. Thanks to those guys as well. It's great to share their company. Those Marvel Fanfare books, they, they all have great art, don't they? Yes. The, the thing with Marvel Fanfare is that was Marvel's Prestige Monthly, so every page of the comic book was printed on the 
the cover stock that they were using at that time. And then they had an extra, I think they had an extra strong cover stock for the covers themselves. And one of the great things about Marvel Fanfare, besides being a solid anthology series, was that most of the books had a portfolio section in the back that spotlighted a single artist. These are guys oftentimes who went on to bigger and better things. So it's great to have like five pinups by um, Kevin Nolan or Butch Geis. Next we have Siskoid regarding the episode Annihilation Silver Surfer. Great coverage of the Heralds, but no love for Aunt May is golden oldie. Was that uh, from a what if issue? You know what? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I want to say it was a what if. I haven't checked on it, but Siskoid did coverage on Siskoid's blog of geekery. The entire series of what if. I, I believe he's covered the entire book. So if anybody's going to know about the golden oldie, it'll be him. Regarding episode nine, Iron Man is born. I started reading Iron Man with the Michelini Leighton days, not long before Armor Wars, though I've been introduced to Iron Man in comics long before in horrible black and white French translations, and then as a member of the Avengers and the West Coast Avengers. I had this thing in my early teens where I was really interested in team books and not solo books, so I was late getting into Iron Man, Cap, Hulk, etc. Don't ask me why. I think I just wanted more superheroes for my buck. Siskoid went on in the episode 10, Iron Man and Mr. Fix-It, a night with Mac and Fix-It, Frank Free episode. Fix-It is the bomb. I have to reread that run sooner than later. You know, I haven't read a lot of Fix-It. I mean, I obviously I know who Fix-It is, but I, uh, the character, not the person, I definitely know who the person is. I, I just don't think I've, I've had enough exposure to him, so I think that I know eventually we're going to read a nice run. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Yeah, the thing is, this episode we talked about our Mr. Fix-It and his devotion to the Hulk, but that's pretty much his favorite run. And since Peter David's work is a great entry point to the Hulk character, my assumption is we'll start reading some of that run relatively soon. As we progress with our Hulk coverage, that's probably going to be our starting point because that's his favorite material. And honestly, it's the material that is most likely to resonate with all three of us. So it just makes sense to start there. And you know, I never read any of the McFarlane stuff. Can we read some McFarlane stuff just because I want to look at it? Well, that's Peter David too so it makes sense to start there as well when Al Milgram was leaving the book it was a brief transition period uh, Peter David really made it its own very quickly as did Todd McFarlane because McFarlane started redesigning a bunch of the characters and the status quo of a lot of those older characters had either recently changed or were very quickly changed by Pat so it just makes sense that's a great place to start and it would be a favorite for all three of us I expect plus Peter David had one of the longest runs in comic book history I think he was on the Hulk for 12 years there's no reason not to jump in at some point over the span of time that most of our listeners were probably reading the Hulk if they ever followed the book alright next comment is from Count Druncula regarding the Iron Man and Mr. Fix-It A Night with Mac and Fix-It Frank Free episode the Linda Tripp comment nearly made me a spit take but I wasn't drinking so I just ended up coughing until my esophagus hurt the goal isn't to cause our listeners physical harm but I'll take that over numbness I agree I thought that was I, I had no idea he was going to drop a Linda Tripp on me sorry about your throat issues there though I, I can relate yeah with your with your smoky sexy voice uh, moving on though Top 5 Road Crew said thanks for the spot gentlemen I haven't missed an issue of your show yet and fix it in Mac you ended the last one just fine uh, also, Professor Riptide said, fun episode, gents. Uh, this was followed by Siskoid, who concurred, hilarious looper reel, that is all. Our next tweet was from Javier Griot-Marsquash, who we will remind everyone was the writer of the Annihilation Super Scroll miniseries that we covered. Not to mention some television shows like Lost and such. Yeah, so uh, he says, thanks for the kind words and scroll down memory lane. Dudes, the hypothesis was told, or the hypnosis was totally a legacy power. And what he's referring to there was us sort of doubting that that power wasn't just pulled out of the writer's ass to bail Super Scroll out. Because I honestly didn't remember whether or not Super Scroll had hypnosis, in which case you you put us in check to, to your credit there, Frank. I also want to say, so I, I had tweeted this to him because I'd seen that he had recently done a podcast about where he'd mentioned Super Scroll. So I was like, oh, well, he's obviously digs podcasts and listens to them if, if he's willing to appear in one. So I uh, regarding our last uh, podcast, The Cat, I don't know if you guys have listened to the episode all the way through, but the first half is Frank and I 
talking about issue one of the cat um, and the creative team was uh, Marie Severin Roy Thomas and Linda fight was the was the writer and co-plotted with Roy Thomas so I was there for that Frank and fix it then covered what was it issue three that you guys did we did uh, issues two through four but most specifically number two that's the one that he actually read so although you two covered those issues at my house I was off doing other things I think I was looking through some books or reading some stuff I wasn't really paying any attention so I was doing the lawn listening to the podcast and you know, we were really complimentary of Linda Fife through the first, well, I, what you and I did probably... About a half hour, I believe, on, on saying nice things and, and backing up Linda Fife, thinking that she'd been undercut by Roy Thomas or Stan Lee. You know, we were very pro-fight in that first half. Absolutely. So with that, you know, I, t- I took a little, uh, I, I, but before I got too involved in the lawn, I went ahead and tweeted that out because I found it. I found that she is the only member of the creative team on that book who is actually on Twitter. So I was like, cool, I'll send this to her and she can take a listen to it just like Mark Swash did. And maybe we can get some feedback on, you know, how involved Stanley really was in the plotting and some of those bizarre powers like the the women's intuition that I'd, I'd said, that's got to be Stan Lee telling a woman she has to give the female feminist character women's intuition as a power. So uh, then I went on to listen to the next 30 minutes of it with you and fix it, uh, or more specifically you not being particularly complimentary of the next three issues. Uh, and again, since I hadn't really paid attention, I'd uh, kind of missed that you'd been so harsh on it. Well, when the phrase fell on her fucking face comes up, I guess that's not ex- delicate or constructive necessarily that's not really constructive that would be accurate so what i did was i quickly deleted that tweet (laughs) i literally stopped mowing the lawn took my gloves off pulled my phone out and deleted that sucker he told the story in front of mr fixit and my girlfriend the other night and he's talking about he's doing the lawn and then he's listening to the podcast and all of a sudden his mower goes shuts it down goes off deletes the tweet and mr fixit and my girlfriend were both rolling i wish we'd had the mics going when he was telling that tale it was great well because i literally i stopped in my tracks and just let it just die i just let the mower die and then pulled my phone out and deleted it as quickly as humanly possible so she may get on and may, i don't know she may have got a notification email and may listen anyway but hey whatever i tried i'm sorry for the emotional trauma yeah let's yeah apologize now count druncula uh left us a comment about episode 11 annihilation super scroll saying hmm max thinks that the fantastic four are lame i could let the hate building in me spill over and announce i will never listen to the podcast again but he also likes cheers damn i guess i'll stick around with the cast for now when max said that he we would like to do some fantastic four fu- uh, coverage in the future druncula said preferably something from the mid-90s when Sue wore that ridiculous version of her costume with a four-shaped boob window and revealing thighs and shoulders. Because as everyone knows, the secret to boosting FF sales is to make Invisible Woman more naked. Both movies tried it. Yeah, wasn't the thing even like a weird uniform at that time too? Yeah, that was when... uh, Wolverine had supposedly cut his face and disfigured the man whose face is already made of rocks so much that he decided to start wearing a helmet. Uh, it's coming back to me now. Yeah, it didn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. I understand the desire to sexualize every female character to ever appear in a comic book, but I wonder if people realize that for somebody who grew up in on 80s and 90s comics, Sue Storm was like, the mom of a family of superheroes. So that was like your mom running around in fetish gear, not appealing. No, it was really weird. Our next comments from Ange regarding the Annihilation Super Scroll episode. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the Super Scroll, and it's all based on a two-part story, Marvel Team-Up number 61 and 62. I read it when I was just a kid, and as I'm now sure you know, stories that imprint on your childhood are invulnerable. The Super Scroll in that story is just a complete badass. He, tr- he trounces the Human Torch, 
and holds his own with Miss Marvel. He's only defeated when some ancient intelligence trapped inside a crystal fire fries his brain. It's a better story than that sentence makes it seem. The art in the arc is by John Byrne, and Scrawly looks devastating. Ange continues, So imagine my surprise as I age to see the Super Scroll just get beaten up time and again. I think he has become what I call a yardstick character. When a writer wants to show how tough a character is, he has them trounce the Super Scroll. It gives a measure of the other character that he could defeat a one-man Fantastic Four. Prometheus is a good example of a yardstick character in DC. The one-shot didn't make it easier for me to be a Super Scroll fan. At least I have Marvel team up. Those issues are completely dog-eared and battered. What ends up happening is you've got a guy who's tough. Super Scroll is one of the first Fantastic Four villains and used to do quite well against them. And then he slowly worked his way down the Marvel hierarchy and they let him get to the point where he was a joke and it felt like anybody could beat him. So rather than being a Yardstick character, he was a space filler because barring a run-in with Daredevil, everybody else was presumed to beat him because he no longer had any kind of reputation worth defending. At some point, you have to redeem the characters, give them the chance to build themselves back up again, get some uh, victories under their belt, or you end up with a guy like Super Scroll, who, personally, I like that miniseries, but by the time he got to the, he, that point, nobody took him seriously anymore. One thing I wanted to mention, too, is, curiously enough, uh, hopefully this year, if not very early next year, we'll, we'll be covering another Super Scroll-related story with art by John Byrne, but it's probably not the one you're thinking of. Oh, wow, another teaser. All right, our next comment comes from Professor Riptide regarding episode 12, Beware, the cause of the cat. Look forward to a listen, gents. Next comment's from Eternal Rage. Woo is right. Patsy getting some respect. Gonna have to wait to hear this until tomorrow. Just missed the workout. Yeah, he, he when he first heard about the episode, he thought we were going to talk about Patsy Walker. We ended up talking about Greer Grant Nelson, but he's looking forward to hearing us discuss both of them. Uh, that's why he said, sweet, just had it downloaded to the phone. Over an hour, awesome. Eternal Rage is one of our biggest uh, fans in terms of longer episodes. I'm not sure how well the audience receives that, but uh seemed like the hour and eight minutes of the cat worked out okay. Yeah, I think it's uh, a good one. I think the like our stinger-teased follow-up is going to be pretty good, too. Next comments from Ange. I have very little knowledge of the cat slash Hellcat outside of some random Defenders issues and now the current She-Hulk. So thanks for covering these and linking to the sites that have the pages. The art is luscious. I'm a fan of Severin and Wood, so seeing them together was peanut butter and chocolate team-up. And I do like the material here. It must have been considered groundbreaking for the time. I had to chuckle at a bit of her powers. For those who don't know, Supergirl also has super female intuition in the earliest action comic stories, something even Superman couldn't boast in his heyday of the Silver Age. Kara's super intuition was a bit scattershot. Sometimes she would intuit someone was lying. Other times she would know to go left versus right it wasn't emphasized beyond her the first year or so and in terms of feedback yes the iron man comics i had he did sport roller skates but i also remember that he had spring-loaded cryogenic bomb in his shoulders that he used to freeze a dreadnought that had him bear hug seemed too convenient so we're gonna talk about uh, women's intuition again i actually like supergirl's application of that power that sounds kind of cool one of the problems with being the girl versions of superman is there a nat- there's a natural assumption that you're going to be the weaker model so i always liked it when supergirl got a little tweak that's why i like the peter david series of supergirl so much because she ended up with a much different set of powers and mission goals than superman in the first 50 issues of the series that he did with gary Frank and Leonard Kirk. But yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of a neat application of super intuition because basically it becomes a catch-all and as long as it seems vaguely plausible and it has a little element of the mystical to it as well, which is something that isn't associated with Superman. So I kind of like that being applied to Supergirl. And as far as the Iron Man cryogenic bomb goes, I had guessed he was talking about the roller skates, which I just tweeted out some pages of from our Twitter account at Rolls Fine. Cryogenic bombs? That's not that bad. Come on. Now if he was fighting like some sort of fire guy and he had some sort of 
sort of water balloon bombs, then I get it. But cryogenic bombs isn't that bad. Moving on to Count Druncula, I had never read any of these pre-Tiger stories of Weird Nelson, so thank you for the introduction. I checked out the first issue on Marvel Unlimited and found that, despite some awkward bits and silliness, it was a pretty solid outing for the character. It's a shame to hear the next three issues sounded pretty underwhelming to terrible. I was really surprised at how much story Fiden Thomas packed into the uh, into a couple of pages. This feels like this could have been whole issues of a Marvel romance comic from the decade before, and I found myself as intrigued by Greer's personal everyday life struggles as her superheroics later on. I love Marie Severin's art in this issue. Great stuff. He goes on to chime in on a conversation he was having with Mac. Matt Fraction's Marvel work is very hit and miss for me, but I think his Invincible Iron Man, at least the first couple years, was really excellent. He tapped into a lot of things that audiences loved about the movies. His Tony Stark was more of Robert Downey Jr.'s characteristics than before. He brought Pepper Potts to the fore, and the first villain he fought was Obadiah Stan bastard. I'd recommend checking out at least the beginning of Fraction's time in the book. It's also probably Salvador La Roca's best work. If you see one of Matt Fraction's Thor comics, on the other hand, throw acid on it and run away. At the 57 minute mark, when Mac starts to crack, voicing his exasperation over the vibrating Iron Man page. Hilarious. Who the hell read the outro disclaimer? Was that Frank? Sounded like he got punched in the throat. Well, uh, I agree. Severin's art was fantastic. Oh, and so one thing I want to touch on real quick before we go too far into this, and this probably should have gone back more to the Supergirl section. So did, did we explain why we picked the cat. I did just want to go through that. that. You had some criteria. You didn't want somebody from a team boat, and then you didn't want somebody who was a derivative of a male character, which was somebody like Spider-Woman. I wanted to make sure that we had a female character that we could talk about in these episodes who had started her own series, who was not derivative of a male character, and especially once you factored in the women's live aspect, the cat fit the bill perfectly. Okay, so I just wanted to throw that out there, that there was a method to selecting the cat. So, uh, Okay, I guess we can go back to Count Druncula's comment. The Fraction stuff, I think he gave me some suggestions to go in and read. I think I'll probably, I'll try out a few. Give him a shot. Why not? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I've read an issue or two of his run, and I've tended to like Fraction as a whole. I've yet to warm to Fraction's creator-owned work. I actually tend to prefer his mercenary work for hire. And I will stay away from his Thor stuff. Plus, is it, he's the one who's doing the Hawkeye series, so we may end up diving into that even before we get to the Iron Man stuff. Oh, really? Okay. Count Druncula has created two pages of Twisted Toy Theater-style artwork where he's uh, parodying our on-air personalities using Iron Man, the Hulk, and Captain America as uh, he razzes elements of the show. This is actually something he was doing for the Fire and Water podcast as well, and uh, I'm proud to say that I've managed to cross over into both via his representation of my Martian Manor blog for the Fire and Water pieces and Captain America on these pieces, but they're very funny, and uh, they're on the blog if you want to check those out. Yes, Please go check them out. They're hilarious. Our uh, final comment is Sean McLaughlin. He, he just sent us this quote. Quote, that squirrel has an injured forepaw. I can feel it as if it were my own, end quote, which is literally pulled from the cat episode when Greer Grant is demonstrating her heightened women's intuition. So I read that when I was sitting at a restaurant with my wife because I got the, the notification. I pulled it out and started reading it. And I literally laughed out loud in the restaurant because that was one of my favorite parts from the book because it was just so ridiculous. Uh, that What a ridiculous way to demonstrate a ridiculous power. I mean, just everything about that whole panel was just off the charts insane. It's just one of those beautiful out-of-context references that make and it makes you want to find out more about what in the hell that was all about yeah yeah fantastic so then he also goes on to say that he would rather listen to us talk about old marvel than read them yeah me too man i just finished reading three years of a 70s marvel series that i think is going to have health impact on me later on <laughs> uh, for 
for future podcasts. I would if somebody if I could like have a surrogate read these books and we could just podcast about them without having to read them. That would be awesome. Like a clip notes version. Exactly. Uh, and then his, his next comment is best 80 silver surfer pitch came from a hippie running a comic book store. It's a great book. He says good shit to kids, which also made me laugh out loud again afterwards when I'm sitting with you outside. That was great. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, and then, of course, he's also – he tweeted out a picture of Iron Man on skates, which was not the exact reference that you were making, but it shows that Iron Man has a precedent for skating. And actually, I, I was familiar with that because if I remember correctly, that turned up in the Marvel No Prize book from the early 80s where they reprinted panels from all of their cock-ups over the years. And Iron Man rolling down a hill with skates sticking out of his like helmet and shoulders and butt or something like that. Fairly memorable image. Hey, look, man. All right. This was all 1980 and before. Roller skates were a big thing back then. There are restaurants whose service uh, model were built entirely around roller skates. So, I mean, look, it's hindsight 2020 is all I'm trying to say on the roller skate. Well, hey, if they had done that at Iron Man 3, he could have been his own dolly. So that would have been handy, actually. Right? See? We've also, uh, we've been missing commenting on our first and only so far iTunes comment from a fellow named Green-Blooded Vulcan. If it's one of you fellows that listen to us regularly, let us know that that's your alias. But he said that the Marvel podcast heroes have arrived and gave us four, five stars. He said, great show delving into the past and present of the 616. Three gentlemen with three different types of appreciation for the universe. Fix-It has a lock on the cosmic modern era with a laid-back way of dropping facts. Frank knows enough to make you believe, or just well-spoken, and very straightforward. Max seems like the casual fan embraces this fact. Crazy, maybe. Listen and be the judge. These have mentioned being friends for quite some time and play well off one another. I look forward to the cast week in and week out. I'm sure all of you have the perfect face for radio. <laughs> Appreciate the comment. Uh, my understanding, because Fire and Water Podcast, which I listen to, they have a real boner for these iTunes reviews. It apparently helps your search ratings or some stuff like that. So I'm perfectly happy to get comments wherever they turn up. But apparently it'd be ideal for them to turn up on the iTunes. And uh, I, I just enjoy reading it. Yeah, that was a very nice comment. I preached, like I said, I I hadn't really checked, um, or like I told you, I I hadn't really noticed any sort of comments on the iTunes because I, you know, I don't go through iTunes because I. I'm an Android user. So I just happened to check that page one time to make sure that it had uploaded our current podcast had synced. And I kind of scrolled down a little bit. I was like, oh, shit, we've got a fucking comment here. <laughs> looked at in forever. And it's very complimentary. So we certainly do appreciate that. Green-blooded Vulcan. And I'll also point out, too, that by podcasting standards, we're pretty handsome dudes. Yeah, I think so. By podcasting standards. I'm going to just put an underline under that. By podcasting standards. Right, right. And finally, Keith G. Baker is going to play us out based on the Super Scroll episode. He offers links to the YouTube songs by Eric B. and Rakim. I know you got soul. And Metallica's Harvester of Sorrow. I can't believe I didn't catch that reference. My brother had Justice for All and played it quite a bit in our, our teen years. And one is among my favorite songs ever. Uh, it's Eric B. and Rakim, and one is among my uh, That Song is Overplayed, I Don't Want to Hear It Ever Again songs ever. If we agreed on things, it wouldn't be a good podcast, would it? Uh, probably not. You're right. I mean, I disagree. One thumb up, one thumb down. One thumb up the ass. Uh, okay, nope. The Marvel Superheroes podcast is in no way affiliated with or endorsed by Marvel Entertainment. All characters mentioned and audio clips employed are believed covered under fair use, with no infringement attended against their copyright holders. The views expressed in this podcast are assumed legitimate, truthful, and solely possessed by the speaker. Does the whole podcast suck?
the comics were well. No, I, I remember reading some of the black and whites from the UK that were kind of cool. They were very dark, mm-hmm. uh, darker tone book for him. Uh, but you introduced me. I remember you. I went to the shop or something, and uh, I'll always remember this because you're such an asshole about it. But I said, I said I really like Grant, and you and I was thinking Grant Morrison, and you were thinking Alan Grant, and you said, oh, his writing's kind of dry. And I'm like, I like Grant Morrison a lot. Like, I really liked him a lot. But then I got Grant Morrison and Alan Grant mixed up mm-hmm. because I thought I would just see Grant and I assumed right away it was Morrison, not realizing right. they would always do Morrison's last name. And uh, I always remember I felt like an, an ass after that because I was like, well, which one did I read? Go ahead. I'd, I'd rather not stop oh, okay. hit the pause button. Well, Aside from maybe Mr. Fantastic's intelligence, right? You, you normally don't compare the humanoid superheroes. There's always something greater and stronger, right? Whereas the Hulk always seemed to, even when he was out doing, like, space adventures, it was still, like, the Hulk still trashing on dudes with his strength. Well, is he smart as Mr. Fantastic, right? Well, that's, it's always, is he as strong as the Hulk? Yeah. Whereas even, like, Tony Stark, Tony Stark's smart, but then there's, a, like, he's not Mr. Fantastic. Like, he's not building. Well, he's an engineer. He's not right. a polymath, like. Right.